Hello everyone, Dr. Stillman here, and today we are going to be talking about my personal labs, and we are going to be doing this for a very, very simple, clear reason. I do a lot of uh, lab interpretation for patients, and there are a lot of misconceptions uh, that people have about what their labs mean and uh, why or how we should change our decision making based on what we see in labs. And this came about and I decided to do this because of changes I saw in my own labs that I realized I was counseling a lot of patients on all of the time. And so I, I've never seen another doctor do this, which I think is unfortunate because really the public is undereducated and misinformed regarding the realities of labs um, because doctors don't spend enough time educating the public on what different labs mean. There's also a lot of controversy in the profession regarding what labs we should do and why we should do them. And I think that, you know, a lot of people come to me looking for labs to be a crystal ball into their problems uh, when in fact they really have things that you can find based on history alone. That's very well known in the medical world. Doesn't matter what group of, of doctors you talk to, there's no substitute for taking a history. One of the reasons I wanted to make this uh, video is that a lot of patients seem to think that they need labs in order to know that they're well, and that's not always the case. Labs are a deeper dive, a, a different type of insight, a different type of information for patients to make decisions on and to base their decisions on, but they're not a substitute for real genuine medical care. One of the biggest mistakes that I see patients making is that they will go out and they will purchase labs um, at their own discretion from different companies. And while I'm not opposed to people taking their health into their own ha hands, when the medical system is obviously overburdened and people don't feel they have access to adequate care, I also see people making big mistakes in their health and wellness when it comes to uh, interpreting their own labs. Your labs are really only as valuable as your interpretation. There's also a lot of people out there taking advantage of the shortage of doctors who are willing to write for labs and then explain labs. And they're taking advantage of a bad situation by overcharging people for labs. So I'm gonna tell you that the lab panel I'm gonna share with you of mine today runs about $400 for patients in my practice. And anywhere else you go for these labs, to get this degree of information, this number of labs, you're probably going to be looking at $1,000 to $1,200 um, for, for the same, uh, same analytes, same laboratory, same quality, everything. The irony of that to me is that, you know, we have an initial visit with me that's $1,500 where you get this panel included. You would be spending almost that on the labs themselves elsewhere. Um, people, one of the biggest things they need to realize about labs is that because the quality of the lab is, is very much, and whether or not you get anything out of it is largely dependent upon who's interpreting it. Do they see a lot of that lab? Do they see a lot of that lab test in people like you who have similar problems, similar stories, and similar medical conditions? And do they spend a lot of time counseling people about that lab? Otherwise, you're just wasting your money. So without further ado, we're going to get into my labs. Okay. So this is from 922. That's 92022. That's the ninth month, September 2022. 
these labs you can see span from September, December, July, August, and late August of, uh, this is 22, I, sh I mistitled that, it's actually 23, so that's this year. Um, so it's about, it's almost a year's worth of labs. And I did, you know, six lab draws or five lab draws in that period of time. Uh, I'll go through why I did that in a little bit, but you know, what I want to start with, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go over labs that are, um, well, I will go over this one. So for starters, let's talk about kidney function. One of the things I see people doing is they think that because their kidney function, which is expressed as GFR dropped or increased, they improved their kidney health. Uh, the reality is that these numbers that go into the equation that control kidney function or, or you know, we, we use to determine kidney function, first of all, the equation is it's theoretical. It's not an absolute truth. Secondly, it fluctuates a lot. So if you look at these September labs, you see that my GFR, that's glomerular filtration rate, that's your essentially your kidney function. It's dependent mostly on BUN and creatinine. It's 93. And then in December, it's 108. That's a 15 point difference, right? It doesn't mean my kidney function improved by 15%. My kidneys didn't go from 75% to 85 or 90%. There's just a lot of variability in these numbers day to day, week to week, month to month. Okay, between 9.22 and 12.22, I put on probably five to 10 pounds of muscle. And fast forward to July of 2023, I'd put on even more muscle. And you'll notice that technically my kidney function increased, which doesn't really make sense based on the equation. And then you go to August and you see that it's declined again. And then you go to, you know, later in August and you see again, it's lower. What's the point here? This is a very important metric of health, kidney function, and it fluctuates wildly. It goes all the way from a low of 86 up to a high of, if I recall correctly, you know, like 108 right? That doesn't mean my kidney function is actually fluctuating a lot. Most labs that people are looking at fluctuate this much. I'm going to go through some more specific examples for your edification. Another one that's very important is triglycerides. When triglycerides are over 150, I'm very concerned because it means the liver is not handling fats well and the fats are freely available in the blood. But I don't freak out when the triglycerides are still in the normal range, but on the upper levels, because as you're going to see in my own labs, they fluctuate a lot. And for the record, I have no real medical issues to speak of. Triglycerides are 82 over here. There are 109 over here. If you look at the next round, there are 139, much closer to the upper limit of normal. And if you look over here, there are 105. There's tons of variability here. Now, contrast that with my cholesterol levels, which are incredibly consistent. So here we see in September, total cholesterol is 185, 199, 180, 191, 180. Very, very, very consistent. So all of you have different labs. Some of them are more or less consistent. What's the key to the consistency? The key to the consistency in your labs is your consistency in your diet and your lifestyle and your exercise. A lot of people, a lot of you are not consistent with your diet and your lifestyle. And you're going to spend money on labs and you might as well flush it down the toilet because if you're not consistent in your daily habits, your routine, what you eat, how you think, whether or not you sauna or don't sauna, cold plunge or don't pl cold plunge, go to the gym, don't go to the gym. 
And this is another thing is that two to three days before you're doing a blood draw, you really don't want to be doing anything crazy over the top out of the ordinary. You don't want to go have a beat down workout. You don't want to go run a marathon. You don't want to go, you know, set a PR for your deadlift because it's going to throw off a lot of your labs and you just don't need to do that. And you don't want to do that. A lot of people don't realize that. So that's another one for that's relevant. Okay. Let's talk about testosterone. Now this whole thing really started because I was looking at my hormone levels for testosterone and thyroid. And I spend a lot of time going over testosterone and thyroid labs because I see a lot of men in my practice. And you'll notice here that my testosterone levels are in the sort of the middle of the range. Now I can tell you that you're going to see a really wide range of testosterone levels in men today, not just because of all the things you hear about on social media, like seed oils and Wi-Fi and artificial light at night, but just because this lab varies an enormous amount. And I'm a great example of somebody in whom this lab varies, you know, 200 or so points, one direction or the other, even when my sleep is extremely consistent, my exercise routine is extremely consistent, my diet is extremely consistent, my stress levels are extremely consistent. There are just, there's a lot of noise in these signals. And you'll notice here, my initial testosterone levels are mid fives, free is 12.4. Then we come over here to the next round of labs in December, uh, and you'll see that they are 612 and 13.3, so they've increased. If you come over here to the next round of labs, you got 415 and 9.4, so it dropped significantly from before, you know, almost 200 points from 612 to 451. And then if you come over here to August, oh, where did it go? You'll see that it's back up into the fives. This lab draw, the most recent one, is still pending. But the point is, and then here's the other thing, though, is you look at the LH and the FSH, they're extremely, extremely consistent. 7 7.4, 3.2, 8.6, 3.0, 6.9, 3.0, 7.5, 3.3, 6.4, 3.1. Why am I telling you all this? Tons and tons of doctors never run these labs because they don't run a concierge level practice where they spend a lot of time with patients trying to really dial in their diet and lifestyle. They're going from room to room. They may have three or four minutes with a patient. If they're really lucky, they have 15. A lot of that time is spent checking boxes and writing notes and looking into the computer. And at the end of the day, their brain is fried. Their decision-making potential is poor to zero and they're going to try and order less and less labs. I actually think that's totally reasonable because if you don't have the time to really make decisions and counsel patients extensively regarding the lab results, you have no business ordering them. You all understand, I think, how broken the system is and how little time doctors have with patients. They hate it. You hate it. The reason it's still the way that it is is because our world is run by narcissists and psychopaths. Uh, there's nothing we can do, at least that I can tell about that, other than continue to call them out for what they are. But the point is, to bring it back to the testosterone, is that my levels have fluctuated a lot, a lot, a lot. That doesn't mean that I have low T, and it doesn't mean that I need to run out and get a testosterone uh, prescription, right? What does it mean? It means you should have a conversation with a provider about what it means for you. So let's say that I were same age, same demographic, same lifestyle, et cetera. And I had, you know, problems with performance in the bedroom, the boardroom, work, the athletic field, the gym. I was feeling depressed. I was feeling anxious. I had all these symptoms of low T. 
Well, many, many anti-aging and wellness doctors would put someone with these levels on testosterone in order to normalize those levels. And many of those men would thank those doctors because it would really help them improve their quality of life. But this also doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get some kind of advantage in terms of their longevity, their vitality, their risk of different diseases. All of that is actually much more complicated and also comes down to a lot of other specific individualized factors, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the presentation at the end. I am not going to hold myself out as some kind of expert on this. I'm only 35 years old. I know docs who've been doing uh, testosterone replacement therapy for decades longer than I have and who only do TRT. There's lots of them out there. Uh, the guy whose work I think is most entertaining and informative on this is actually a guy named Jay Campbell, who's not actually a doctor, but he has these doctor roundtables that are fascinating if you happen to want to learn more about this, where they'll talk about the risks and benefits and things like that. And I'm hoping one day I'll get to interview him publicly so we can have more of a conversation about this. But I just want you to understand, a lot of people go out there and they look at the lab and they think the lab is what matters. You can have normal testosterone function with low or low normal levels of testosterone. And you can take men who have low and low normal levels of testosterone and a lot of symptoms and give them a lot of therapeutic benefit if you supplement their testosterone levels. Now, before you get into supplementing with anything, you should always ask the question, why is it low? Why might my testosterone levels be lower then say whoever is pushing the normal range up into 916 or what it used to be, which was up in like the, the 900s, thousands, 1200s, because a lot of docs will tell you that we ought to be running, you know, our patients 900 to 1200 on total testosterone. And, you know, I've heard things like 20 to 30 on free testosterone. Again, I'm not an expert in that. I'm not going to hold myself out as one. You know, I'm just going to tell you how I deal with this with my patients and what I think about. So what could be ruining my testosterone levels? It shouldn't be my sleep because that's pretty well dialed in, although it could be better. It's possible it's the small amount of artificial light at night that I get, but I doubt it. It's possible that it's my relatively indoor existence because I am a doctor and I am a virtual doctor, which means that I am on this webcam a lot in order to make a living. It could be toxins in my environment or in my body that I've accumulated over the years with all of the various things I've been exposed to. Beyond that, it's all speculation. And how do I prove any of that? answer. I can't prove any of that. It's all just sort of facts of life that I have to deal with now. So what do I do? I focus on my wellness. I live a healthy life. I hit the sauna. I eat a nutrient dense diet. I eat organic food. I avoid toxic chemicals. I think the rest of it, you know, my spiel pretty well by now, if you're following me and you, you know what I do. And if you want to know more about what you should do and what I would do, if I were you, that's where jumping into a coaching program with me is an excellent idea or engaging us in becoming a patient, stillmanmd.com, apply for consultation, um, or uh, Stillman Wellness, join our, our email list and you'll get notifications on our coaching programs. So hopefully that's enough about testosterone. We're gonna come back to that and talk about it again in a, another you know 15 minutes or so. Another thing that I see a lot of people checking that they don't understand is adrenal hormones. So the adrenal hormones, you know, DHEA sulfate, cortisol are the two main adrenal hormone metabolites that we measure in the blood. Okay. And there's, there are two hormones that I see people talking about all the time. I mean, people talk about cortisol so much because it has a lot to do with stress. A lot of people talk about DHEA as well, because it has to do with stress and metabolism and all these other things. Okay. What I don't think people understand is how these things vary. So if you look at my DHEA and cortisol levels, 
you'll see that you know first round September or September 2022, you see the DHEA is 249, and you see it's 237, 231, 210, 268. Those are very, very, very consistent. I hope you'll agree. Look at the cortisol: 14.6, 8.8. 11.5, 8.9, 13.2. That is a huge amount of variability. And this is why doctors don't like running cortisol tests. And I understand why they don't like running cortisol tests. It's also why they hate the diagnosis of adrenal fatigue. Because adrenal fatigue is this thing that ends up getting thrown around like, oh, you're tired and you have this these symptoms, you must have adrenal fatigue. If you look at these people's adrenal hormones, very rarely are they actually truly abnormal. I have seen basement level uh, cortisol levels in some patients, and they are real problems that have to be addressed medically. But at the same time, look at how much these vary. We have levels down in the 8s, the 11s, the, the 12s, the 14s, right? That's a huge change, right? The difference between 14.6 and 8.8 .8 is almost five, which is like 30% of 14.6 approximately. Contrast that with the DHEA. It's very, very consistent in the 230s, 210s, 2 teens, and one at 268. So understanding and having a doctor who can look at a lab and say, hey, listen, this varies a lot person to person, and this varies a lot even within people. So don't hang your hat on this lab. A couple of good nights of sleep, a solid meal, some rest, some relaxation, some time spent in parasympathetic mode, meditating, doing some sauna could make all the difference in the world, in the world to what these labs are. And this is where people really waste money on lab tests. They get these labs. And if you're working with a doctor who's competent and does labs that you know, you're looking at and hanging your hat on and basing your decisions on often enough, they're going to be able to say, hey, listen. You know, if you're consistent with your habits and your diet and your lifestyle, we don't really need to check a DHEA sulfate in you every three to four months. We can do it every year. Or, hey, you know, based on the fact that your sleep is atrocious and you are, you know, chronically stressed, your cortisol is going to be abnormal. And we can check it to make sure that you don't have overt hypocortisolism or adrenal fatigue, which is, you know, a real thing that should be ruled out appropriately. Uh, but I mean, a lot of people coming to me who are just burned out and tired, they don't need a cortisol level. They need to fix their diet and their lifestyle with common sense, basic stuff. And until they've done that, running the cortisol level is kind of pointless in many cases, because it's not going to change what we're going to do. We're not going to give them supplemental cortisol. You might play around with things like maca, ashwagandha, different adaptogens. You could add things in like adrenal um, uh, glandulars. But again, I don't do that lightly because if you're not on top of the patient's diet and lifestyle, they're actually going to hurt themselves more with those things than they are going to help. And then they're going to potentially go through withdrawal. And that's why the fundamental habits that Jim and I harp on all of the time are so important. Okay. Another one I'd like to highlight is IGF-1, which is a really interesting lab. It's highly related to human growth hormone levels. And it correlates with, I, I look at it as, as a sleep, stress, and then calories, particularly protein uh, marker. So you'll see that my IGF-1 is extremely consistent. It's in the 160s, where is it, to 170s, pretty much every single time. Now, I like having this for myself because it means that I know that my habits are consistent and it's coming out consistently. 
if I had a patient whose IGF one, you know, was just all over the place, I would know that no matter what they told me, they were not actually being consistent with their diet and lifestyle because it's not possible for that to, to vary, vary that much. I mean, just look at these two labs. These are one point apart in terms of the, uh, 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 absolute number and look at the range. This is a very accurate, very consistent test, and it's consistent across the entire year because I was consistent with my diet and lifestyle. All right. Now I want to talk about the lab that really kicked this whole thing off, which is actually my TSH. So I don't have TSH levels from December and September because I decided not to run them. I decided to add this TSH to this panel just because I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing it on anyone because most people coming to me have fatigue. And look here, my TSH is 4.5. Some docs would say, oh, you have hypothyroidism, here's a pill. But wait, how much does TSH vary from person to person? I repeated my TSH and it came back at 3.9. That might not seem like that much, but when you consider the fact that this lab goes from 0.45 to 4.5, a difference of, you know, call it 0.6 from 3.9 to 4.5, 0.6 is a huge difference, right? And while I'm waiting on this uh, next, oh wait, the next TSH actually is back. Where is it? Where did it go? Yeah, you can see over here it's three, right? So the difference between 4.5 and three is 1.5. This number varies a lot. And it's why people don't hang their hat on a TSH. And it's why often patients will freak out more than doctors over an elevated TSH. If you want more information on thyroid testing and stuff like that, I did a whole master or a whole webinar on that on Saturday because we're enrolling another cohort of people for our thyroid coaching program. That webinar, is some of the best information for my practices in there, incredible case studies where I actually show you real people's labs, abnormalities we identified, things we help them to change to look and feel their best. Go watch it if you haven't. We're enrolling our thyroid course until the 1st of September. Uh, so if you have problems with energy, weight, um, uh, uh, how you feel, your uh, performance in any aspect of life, and you're worried about those having to do with your thyroid, enroll. We will teach you a lot of things that will help you improve your health, improve your wellness. So anyway, I decided as a result of this abnormal TSH that I checked, that I was going to get full thyroid panels on myself. Because the other thing I see people doing is, particularly in the functional medicine world, and I talked about this in the webinar on Saturday as well, people will say, oh, you know, my uh, thyroid hormone levels are normal, but they're low normal, so I need more thyroid hormone. And for the life of me, I really struggle to find people who feel better on higher and higher and higher doses of thyroid hormone. Usually what ends up happening is they have this weird combination of hyperthyroid side effects and hypothyroid um, symptoms, which means in my opinion that the thyroid is not the problem. It's something else. It's their diet, it's their lifestyle, it's their you know stress levels, it's something else going on in the environment that's dysregulating their body. So I said, okay, what are my thyroid hormone numbers? And this is another place where you're actually gonna see a ton of variability from one person to another. So let's scroll down to the thyroid hormone numbers. And this is again, very interesting. And I have more of these pending, or I'm going to do more of these. I'll update you guys as we do this. So T4, 7.1. And if you look at the T4, right, on the second draw, same month, it's 
Contrast that with the, the total T3. 128 is the first value, and 97 is the next. 97 is, you know, call it 100 in round numbers and 130. I mean, this is a huge spread, right? A 30-point difference is 25 30%. So if this is how much it varies day to day and someone who's on no thyroid hormone replacement, who's not having any kind of real thyroid symptoms, how much might it vary in somebody who's got problems with this gland? And this is, again, why doctors don't like checking these numbers. They're extremely dynamic. I mean, I question whether or not in a perfect world you wouldn't do thyroid hormone replacement with multiple lab tests, but that becomes prohibitively expensive both in time and in money. So nobody wants to do that. I will tell you the best clinicians I know, they help their patients get feeling balanced on their thyroid hormone dose. And they focus more on ameliorating their symptoms without pushing them into symptoms of, of excess. And they look at the numbers on the labs and they make sure that they're not over replacing the patient and driving them into a hyperthyroid state, which is just as bad as being hypothyroid. Some other, um, uh, thyroid labs that we got, uh, on this panel, uh, we got the T, uh, free T3. I think actually we're missing, there might actually be a free T4 in here. There should be a free T4. There we go. I missed it. Okay. So the free T4, um, it's right here and you'll see it's very consistent, right? Free T4, 1.31 over to 1.38. Now, I'll never forget talking to a uh, senior clinician about this, an endocrinologist. And I asked him what he thought about these numbers. And he said, look, we don't measure a lot of these free numbers in particular because the analytical methods to actually get good results are very complicated and very difficult. And if you'll notice over here, the units are nanograms per deciliter. Those are tiny, tiny, tiny units, right? A milliliter is, you know, uh, one one thousandth of a liter, uh, a microliter is, or a, and I should, I'm going to use grams. So a milligram is one one thousandth of a gram and a gram is a tiny quantity. A, uh, microgram is one to the 10 to the negative sixth. If I recall correctly, a nanogram is 10 to the negative ninth. And a picogram is something like 10 to the negative 12th. And even if I've got my, you know, Greek prefixes mixed up and it's not that. The point is these are extremely, 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 extremely small quantities in blood that we're trying to measure. And so you can see big shifts and there's a lot of unreliability or not necessarily very much reliability in these lab tests, which is one reason, again, why doctors don't like to order them. And I understand that. And for me, when I'm working with somebody who's got thyroid problems, and here's the last one is free T3. I'm really focused on dialing in their diet and their lifestyle and making sure that they are consistent because if they are not consistent, these numbers will not be consistent. Even though I'm incredibly consistent with when I wake up, my daily routine, how much I exercise, how much I eat, how much I sleep, what my stress levels are, how often I go to the beach, how much sun I get, even though I'm consistent, right? You still see some huge changes in my labs. I cannot tell you how big these variances become if you're somebody who's sick, who's up and who's who's you know up and down in terms of your your habits, your choices, your calories, your protein, your macros. If there's tons of variability in your diet and lifestyle, do not count on there being any consistency in your labs.
All right. Let's talk about uh, one more lab uh, that I tracked in the last year that I made some interesting changes for, and that's ferritin. So you'll notice over here my ferritin is 231. I've had a number of ferritins that are in the high normal range, and I know more about iron handling now than I did in my regular conventional training. And one of the things that I've realized is that iron overload is actually a major problem. I'm planning on attending a conference in Australia on this topic where I'll be speaking about subclitical iron overload. And what I've found in my practice is that when I get men who've got high ferritin levels, even in the normal range to go dump blood, they often see significant improvements in their health. I've seen blood pressure come down and not just a fleeting, uh, you know, result of removing some blood from the vascular system. I'm talking about actual durable improvements in blood pressure. I've seen people improve their metabolism. They're more metabolically flexible. Uh, their ability to tolerate carbohydrates improves. Uh, I've seen men uh, improve their energy. That's probably the number one thing they tell me if they've got some degree of an elevated ferritin, they feel like they have more energy and they're not feeling as, uh, just as sick in a general kind of way. And this is because ferritin levels are not uh, robust or very reliable markers for total body iron. In fact, the iron stores and accumulates an enormous amount of iron that is not shown in the blood at all. You can have a grossly elevated total body iron and a very normal ferritin level. And that's one reason why if you look in the literature, it seems like men who run a lower ferritin and who donate blood have a longevity advantage and a reduction in many different illnesses compared to men who don't. So I looked into this and I, I got my ferritin levels. I started to donate blood, but my ferritin levels, you know, were actually still elevated. So what did I do? Let's go ferritin. Started to donate blood. I saw that this dropped down to 146. Um, I think this is when I... Yeah. And this is when I got my hereditary hemochromatosis uh, DNA mutation analysis done. Part of why I, I pound the table on this is that in people who are heterozygous, they often never get a diagnosis of iron overload because they never get to overt iron overload that is causing them to go into acute liver failure. But that doesn't mean that gradual overload of iron is not playing a role in chronic disease generation in that individual. So uh, and this also is relevant if you marry someone who's got a heterozygous gene, you could have a homozygous child. So if you're a you know high achieving you know person, you really want to do everything you can to avoid uh, chronic disease, getting this level of data is, in my opinion, invaluable because some people I'm going to catch this, and if you don't manage iron overload early in life, it turns into things like cancers and diabetes and dementia and osteoarthritis and all kinds of other problems. There's a reason why they don't recommend this screening result or screening test uh, suite for the general public. We could debate whether or not they should or not. I offer to my patients when I have a high index of suspicion that they have iron overload and we just go from there. But the point is I knew I needed to get on top of my iron levels. And this is yet another example of a lab where it's not really that robust or reliable based on what's going on with your iron status. So I've been donating blood every two months like clockwork for almost the last year now. And look at where my ferritin is. It's 67 now, down from 146. But you come over here and it's 92. And you come over here and it's 88. And the point is simply what I've been saying the whole time, which is these numbers fluctuate quite a lot.
And that means that the quality of your conclusions is only going to be um, is going to be related to the consistency of your habits and your choices. And whether or not you should get these lab tests, you know, if you're ordering them yourselves, you know, I strongly caution people against doing that because they have absolutely no idea how to interpret them. And Dr. Google is not going to help you have a thoughtful, um, uh, fruitful, uh, um, I don't know, decision-making process about how to interpret them. Because I guarantee you this level of information that I'm sharing with you in this video, it, you cannot find it out there on the internet. And I really, one day I'll have the time to walk through all these labs and how I look at them and how much I see them varying and things like that. But I just can't get to all of it all at once. And that's why people come and consult with me and we look at their labs and we talk about what they mean. Now, I want to go back for a moment and talk about testosterone because it's actually a really interesting um, example of uh, what I would describe as sort of a clinical conundrum for us. So whenever I'm talking about testosterone, and you could talk about this, I mean, I could have made this example thyroid hormone, I could have made uh, this example estrogen, I could have made this example progesterone, I could have made it any example and had the same kind of takeaways and, and thought processes for all of you. So even if you're a woman who's thinking, I don't care about my testosterone, I'm a woman, you should, for the record, you, you, you should not ignore testosterone as a woman, it's incredibly important for your health and longevity, as I'll talk about in future videos. Um, even if you don't think this applies to, you, applies to you, the lessons I'm trying to communicate do. So let's go back and let's talk about my testosterone levels again. They're not tip top. They're not the top of the bell curve. Now, the question is, is that a problem? And when I talk to patients about treating anything, I'm always asking them, are we treating a number or are we treating a symptom? You can take any man who feels slow and sluggish and depressed and maybe a little anxious and tired and sleepy and unmotivated and whatever, and you can turn him into an absolute, you know, monster in the gym and you can restore and give him an enormous amount of intensity and verve for life and enthusiasm if you just give him testosterone. But this doesn't mean that everyone should be on testosterone. So are we treating a symptom? If you're going to treat symptoms, go ahead and treat symptoms, but understand what the consequences of the treatment may be in terms of side effects not only short-term, but long-term. And then ask the question, if you're going to treat a number, does fixing this number change something significant about this person's health, their vitality, their lifestyle, something that matters to them, right? And one of the things that's interesting to me about the testosterone literature is we don't see that men who are castrated live a shorter life than men who are not. And we have this data, which is very old, it's from a time when we didn't have supplemental testosterone. And it's, you know, the comparisons here are for singers uh, who were castrated. Some men would go through castration in order to maintain a very high uh, voice. And they compared the age of death of the castrated men to the intact singers who hadn't had castration done to them. And they have the same life expectancy. So what is testosterone doing to men if it's not prolonging their lives? Now, you know, this doesn't show us for the record that the men who've uh, got testosterone are living shorter lives, which also means that, you know, there's no, nothing here to say that testosterone is dangerous. A lot of people end up avoiding testosterone replacement because they think there may be some inherent danger. I don't think it's appropriate to tell people that because I don't think that it's true. You know, if anything, you look at a lot of the modern medical problems that modern men are plagued by, and the truth is these modern medical problems 
often respond to testosterone. So if you have a man who's overweight, diabetic, depressed, tired, you know, just is really struggling and you put him on testosterone, you may fix a lot of those problems with very few, if any, long-term adverse uh, effects. And on top of that, if you have a man who, for example, has had tons of head trauma, exposure to toxins that may have poisoned, you know, his hypothalamus and micro concussions and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we see this a lot, for example, in veterans, we see it a lot in shift workers who often who, you know, are veterans because technically veterans who are working at night are shift workers. Um, you know, they may have wrecked their HPA axis and destroyed their testosterone production. This is why a, a doctor like Dr. Kirk Parsley, who I encourage you guys to follow, check out his work. He's a very interesting fellow. He's a friends of multiple friends of mine. I'm actually looking forward to meeting him in a couple of months in Austin at Runga. If you want to attend an event where I'll be in person, go to Runga, Austin, Texas. Um, if you don't know what that is, check out my live with Joe and new, we are going to be doing that tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, sign up for my email newsletter where we will send you guys notifications on that. Uh, anyway, one of the reasons why he got so interested in hormones is that he saw really terrible hormonal abnormalities in service members. And this is a real problem. The VA is aware of it. And they actually do a fair amount of testosterone replacement because of this. All right. Next paper that I think is interesting, though, is really thought-provoking. This is a 2007 paper that shows that there has been a population-level decline in serum testosterone levels in American men. So let's go over this because it really should shape your thinking about what labs to ask for and how to interpret them. Because a lot of the times people compare apples to apples, and they compare apples 100 years ago to apples today, and those comparisons are not fair. So qualitative comparisons of other existing studies likewise indicate that longitudinal decline within subjects is generally of greater magnitude than corresponding cross-sectional trends. Translation, what we see is that men's testosterone levels inexorably decline with age, and this can skew our numbers and make us think that the population's numbers are dropping, but in fact, the population's just getting older, okay? A competing hypothesis asserts that a population-level decline in testosterone concentration confounds blah, 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 declines with age. A population-level decrease in serum testosterone levels could accelerate the longitudinal declines in T concentrations typically associated blah, 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 blah. Um, translation, you know, we are trying to figure out if the population as a whole has lower and lower and lower T levels, which is exactly what they did in this study. Total testosterone and calculated bioavailable testosterone concentrations were obtained from individuals of like age observed at different times. So they're looking at testosterone levels in 65-year-olds in 1988 and comparing those to 65-year-olds in 2003, right? Same age of the subject, different time and different environment and different lifestyles, right? Okay. What did they find? I'm going to scroll ahead. If you want to read the whole paper, you can see where, where it is and what it is. Um, this is the interesting graphic from this one. So these are total testosterone concentrations uh, in this in this study. And you'll see that for this cohort, which is the earliest cohort, they're much higher than for subsequent cohorts. My numbers are consistent for any, I mean, I had ones in the 600s, right? So any individual can vary this much just over the course of a year. So the trend might be down but there's huge variability within the individual. 
And that's why it's so important not to base your whole life, your identity, your expectations for your performance, your health, your fitness on a lab that you get once a year. Maybe this drives me insane because people end up actually doing, I think, a lot more harm than good by looking at labs in this, I hate to say it, but myopic way. They're so dynamic. There's so many factors that go into whether or not they're normal or not. There's so much that goes into whether or not they're consistent, both between different individuals who will maybe similar and, you know, between different people who are totally different, different lifestyles, different diets, different environments, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So again, I hope that this video helps you understand why or why not to order lab testing. I don't tell people to run out and just go order labs. I may be able to give people some general guidelines and, and, and advice, information, stuff I check in my practice. Like, for example, I check testosterones in any men who are really struggling with their health simply because it's so common to catch men who don't look like they have an abnormal testosterone level, but in fact do. And I have found men who truly had low T under 200, multiple tests, who had healthy diets, healthy lifestyles, you know, mild medical problems at most, but they feel much better on testosterone replacement. And that's just one example, right? A, you know, totally opposite example to that is the people who come to me who are on thyroid hormone and we look at their numbers and they look good. And I say, how are you feeling? And they say, I feel terrible. We get their diet, their lifestyle cleaned up. All of a sudden they feel great. They have more energy. Their sleep's better. They're losing weight. They're looking good. They're feeling good. They're eating well. And then all of a sudden they're like, do I really need to take this thyroid hormone anymore? Thyroid hormone and, and hypothyroidism to me is one of the biggest overdiagnoses out there. And it's not that people don't have adequate levels of thyroid hormone. The reality is that they're not getting the diet and lifestyle coaching that they need in order to have appropriately regulated hormonal axes and production. And even totally aside from the hormone numbers, they don't have the right diet and lifestyle to have normal energy regardless of what the hormone numbers are. Because as I, as I can tell you over and over again, I've seen normal labs in so many people who don't feel well. The labs don't tell the whole story. The history does. And that's why coaching can be so powerful. Uh, last thing, Amy asks, I have a female family member with thalassemia minor. How does this condition affect the ferritin levels and iron storage? So this is a really interesting question. A lot of people don't realize that they have iron storage problems or hemoglobinopathies. And these are very interesting disorders to take care of people for because the hematologists are not that interested in iron overload because they're very, very busy taking care of people who have cancer. And yet iron overload is becoming more and more and more of a problem in our world where we don't lose any blood. So I take that on a case by case basis. And I'm still, because there's so many variants of this, because there's like many different types of thalassemia minor. Uh, I still don't actually know exactly what to tell people to do because a, I haven't had time to read and B, I think it has to be tailored based on other factors. Uh, but people can, there's many different people who are at risk for significant iron overload. And that's why I screen for it uh, more than the vast majority of my colleagues. And in 10 minutes, I'm going to be having a live with my friend, um, Chris Sweeting from EMR Tech. We're going to be talking about red and infrared light therapy. Again, we are enrolling a thyroid coaching program right now. It opens open until September 1st. More information on that in my Saturday webinar. 
I will be doing more lab updates for people. If you'd like to learn more about different labs, please post which labs you'd like to learn more about in the comments. And I look forward to responding to them. And if there's anything else or anyone like you'd like me to interview or debate or whatever, just let me know and I'll try and line that up. Thanks everyone for watching. Take care and have a great day.